Welcome back into another edition of West of Everest. I am Lee Benson, joined once again by Grant Benson as we continue our journey through the college football offseason. Coming up on the show today, Oklahoma is experiencing some behind-the-scenes shakeups. It appears the Sooners have found somebody to replace former special teams analyst Jay Nunez. And the college football playoff format for the upcoming season has been set. And they must have gotten my letters because there's already talks about expanding the playoff even more. Also today, I realized that we have not yet looked back at our preseason predictions and then graded ourselves on how right or how wrong we were back in August. So we'll go back in time and see if Grant and I knew what we were talking about six plus months ago before the season kicked off. And like every show, we may or may not have other things to talk about. It all depends on what we're feeling and how much time we have. Anyways, let's say hello to Grant for the first time today. Hello, Grant. How are you? I'm doing well today. Had kind of a long weekend with friends up north at the cabin in northern Minnesota this weekend. We're supposed to be ice fishing. Wasn't a whole lot of that going on. It's 50 degrees here. It's weird. Yeah, the weather's been beautiful in Oklahoma as well. Low to mid-70s today, beautiful. Nice that you're getting some good weather up there in the northern part of the country. I wanted to start the show with this today because uh, we have a ton of topics. I'm not sure how many, you know, how many minutes we're going to spend on the topics, but I feel like there's a grab bag type of thing, but I did see this. Have you heard that the state of Ohio is banning people from betting on college sports prop bets that deal with individual players? Have you heard about that? Just saw that today. Just saw that today. Um, hadn't seen that, but it's definitely it's topical. I was doing a whole mess of those uh, college basketball prop bets this weekend. <laughs> yeah, it made me think of our trip last fall to Cincinnati because I know that you definitely placed some prop bets on that OU Cincinnati football game, and I can't recall if you got any of them correct or not. But uh, they were like maybe I some did not. Those are. Uh, Kind of. Those are always those are always kind of tough. They're uh, kind of feel like because, you know, you usually get pretty greedy and usually, you know, if you have three legs that you really like, you're always like, ah, I kind of like that one, too. Let's go. Let's go for the fourth leg. And it's always that fourth one that never hits. Always that fourth one that never hits. Not not great odds on those prop bets. I'm talking about parlay. You put them all in parlays. Yeah, that's never a good sign. Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> you put them in parlays. We're trying to make money here. We're trying to have a good time. We're not like, come on. Yeah. Okay, I just wanted to throw that out there just to kind of get the ball rolling. Not going to spend much time on that, although, eh, eh, never mind. Wasn't sure where I was going with that. Let's let's hit well, on. That's a pretty uh, good teaser. I mean, you had, did you have something controversial in your mind there? Or you just kind of what, what, what are you going? What are you going with? I just was trying to decide on how much we wanted to talk about sports betting, but there's not really any reason to right now. I enjoy that quite a bit, as everyone knows that's been listening to this for a while. Uh, but I, I do think we can talk about some of the news that came out this week that revolves around the OU football team. And I don't know. I mean, it's all kind of behind the scenes stuff off the field, but uh, how much impact will it have? I don't know. It's yet to be seen. We'll start with, I think maybe the most consequential news for like the short term. And that is that the Sooners are set to hire San Diego state special teams coordinator, Doug Deacon or Dakin. I'm not quite sure yet how to pronounce the guy's last name. And they're bringing this guy on as a special teams analyst, according to 247 Sports. My guy Colin Kennedy and also Matt Zinitz on the report. Uh, San Diego State was 
56th in SP Plus special teams, uh, ninth in ESPN's special teams FPI. So uh, the replacement for Jay Nunez appears to be Doug. I'm going to go with Deacon right now here on the show. And if it comes out that it's pronounced differently, we'll change it. So, Grant, your reaction to this coaching hire? Yeah, I listen. I, I think if anybody has any sort of like nuanced, deep take about this, they're just they're just trying really hard. And I mean, we I have no idea. I'm not going to go. You know, I'm not one of those guys who's going to go study San Diego State special teams. Um, all I know about OU last season is that uh, they were very mediocre in the field goal kicking department and they also had a really really weird problem of catching punts and so a lot of the times right if you just sort of if you can turn those things around like if you're if your field goal kicking is is kind of okay of course on this podcast uh we are team never kick field goals don't ever kick them um but i digress um, we'll, we'll see. I don't know. I, I remember, remember when, when Shane Beamer was hired, uh, I mean, years and years ago now, or not years and years, but we were always like, man, it'd be really nice if they could kind of turn special teams into like some sort of weapon, actually like sort of weaponize it in some sort of way. Um, I, I gotta tell you, man, this, this is just not that consequential and neither was the Jay Nunez thing. He's still an analyst. He still can't really coach, can't really do much. I, I, I just, until OU gets like a really good field goal kicker, their special teams are probably not going to be very good. Yeah, well, I actually dug pretty deep to find some numbers to try to put this into context because it's late February and why not? Uh, because you see that and you're like, okay, cool. Like everyone was kind of excited about, I shouldn't say everyone, that's kind of a catch-all phrase. Uh, I think Jay Nunez's track record on special teams was supposed to be solid coming from eastern michigan when he came here and granted yeah, he, was just, he was just an analyst so he, he wasn't coaching on field during the games and that's uh you know deacon has had that track record at san diego state he was the special teams coordinator there for six years had been with the aztecs for 17 seasons so the dude was a san diego state staple and brent venables gets him to not only come over here f- to, to leave you know 17 years at that school but gets him over as an analyst after he had been a coordinator. So it's kind of interesting in that sense. And the stat that pops, and I, I mentioned it a little bit, just the, the, the ESPN efficiency or, yeah, efficiency rankings, that's the one that, you know, you, you read the reports and that kind of pops because San Diego State has been in the top 10 the last three seasons and a longer sample size, four out of the last six seasons when he's been the San Diego State special teams coordinator. And so you think, oh, okay, great. I mean, San Diego State, that must mean they're pretty good on special teams. And for context sake, Oklahoma this past season in that ESPN efficiency ranking for special teams was 127th in all of college football, which is almost dead last. And San Diego State was ninth, so huge difference. Uh, 2022, OU was 72nd. San Diego State was number two. And 2021, Lincoln Riley's last year, OU was 37th in that metric, and San Diego State was 5th. And so I just don't know how important this special teams efficiency ranking metric is because I look back at some of the recent national championship winners grant, like Michigan this past year, they were 94th in this metric on special teams. So uh, maybe it doesn't matter that much. The other playoff teams, for what it's worth, Alabama was 3rd. 
Texas 13th and Washington 39th, but the team that was almost in the hundreds ended up winning it all. So I don't know. It Sure, you, it, you want to be high. That's better than being low, but I'm not sure how much it matters. Game to game, play to play, special teams is is the least important part about football until it comes up and bites you in the worst possible moments. And so that's always what you're looking to to avoid. And I know a lot of these special teams saying, like like I already said, field goal kicking is a large, large part of it. So I, I mean I generally speaking, the best field goal kicking teams are gonna be the highest. Like I know Alabama's kicker this year was a stud, made a lot of really long field goals, had a high efficiency rating. And so well, I mean, we'll see. Um there was more competition they, that they brought in for, for kicker in this offseason. We'll see if Schmidt can improve or if that kind of lights a fire or anything. Man, but for the most part, I think the biggest thing that they probably have to figure out is just I, they need to have somebody back there on punt returns that is not going to turn the ball over. Um, and I can't really remember. I mean, did they? I, I can't. I don't think. I don't think Freeman really had any muffs in games that they ended up losing, if, if I recall. I don't think it happened against Oklahoma State or Kansas. No, I don't think so. Um, no, but it, it it did happen at kind of annoying times, and so um, I, I just listen. I, I don't want to be the guy who comes on here and says special teams aren't important. That's that's not. But if you go to the if, if you use SP plus as a as a factor, there OU is ninety fourth in that. Uh, Georgia, who is number one in SP plus, but not in special teams. I think Georgia was like was pretty high up there though, and there was only like a zero point eight point difference between Georgia and OU, and that I mean that is a huge it's just you just you just need to not screw up at the worst possible times on special teams and also don't kick stupid field goals yeah man since since 2015 so almost almost a decade and i guess i could have gone back to 2014 to make this an even decade but uh, since 2015 the national title winners uh as far as like their ESPN special teams efficiency ranking, the 2015 Alabama team has the highest ranking of all the national title winners, and their ranking was 18th that season. But uh, 2016 Clemson was at 76, 2017 Alabama 59, 2018 Clemson 125, 2019 LSU 90, 2020 Alabama 27, so pretty good. 21 Georgia was 34th. But then 22 Georgia was 86th. So it just, yeah, would you want to be higher than lower? Yeah, sure. But it doesn't seem like there's much of a correlation between you being a really good team. And to really hammer that home as far as Oklahoma goes, Grant, the best team that the Sooners have had in the last decade would be which one? Would you say 2017? In the last decade? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That OU team ranked 119th in this metric. So... I just I'm not sure how much of an impact it has. If if you want to look at the glass half full of like okay maybe this is a good I mean this I'm sure this would be a good thing I mean or put it this way if you want to see a stat that makes you think this could be an upgrade over Jay Nunez even though again it's an analyst spot and they're not coaching during the game I went back and looked at Eastern Michigan's rankings in this ESPN special teams metric when Nunez was there and he was the special teams coordinator for five seasons at Eastern Michigan Jay Nunez was. And every single season, they got better. Uh, we'll start at 2017 and go more recent. So 2017, Eastern Michigan was 78th. 2018, they were 76th. 2019, 56th. 2020, 32nd. 2021, 20th. So you, you saw improvement every single year. And then he went to Oklahoma. With this new guy, Deacon, 
four out of his last six seasons as a special teams coordinator, he has San Diego State in the top ten. So much better than Eastern Michigan was. So I guess if you want to look at things like, oh, maybe this is an improvement, point to that stat right there, is that he's had a lot of good teams in the last six years. Even when they were outside the top ten, they were – I think the lowest they were was like 55 in one of the seasons, which not too bad, I guess. So who knows? Maybe he can come in and and just kind of maybe improve it a little bit. Throw in Zach Alley's special teams background. Who knows? That could help as well. So probably not a bad thing for OU. No, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything bad here. It's more of just a notable. It's happened. It's, it's a new member of the staff. It's very, it's it's just, it's the extreme off season is what it is. Yeah. By the way, it's not official yet. I'm not sure if we're going to get an official announcement anyways because it's an analyst hire, but I did notice on Deacon's Twitter account, Twitter X account, that he does have former San Diego State coach on there. So looks that this is going to be like, this is a done deal. Moving on, more behind-the-scenes stuff, and I guess these these next two people are in tandem because it's you know revolves around recruiting. I'll start with I don't know I I'll start with the uh, the on-campus recruiting director, and OU has hired a new one, and you know I, again I'm not sure how to pronounce this person's name. I'm going to go Jolie Ale Ale. I don't know. It looks like Ale A L E. Uh, it makes me think of like Jocelyn Allo with uh, the softball team. Is it, I wonder if it's Jolie Ale or something. Anyways, that's also according to 247 Sports, Colin Kennedy. Again, with all the, all the off-season scoops, my guy Colin. And, so, and she's coming in to replace Lee Davis, who was in that spot after Lincoln Riley left. And this new person, Jolie, I'm going to go Ale. She's worked in the NFL. She's worked at Utah and spent a few years at USC. And so uh, Lee Davis went on to UCF. Looks like she got a, a bit of a promotion there. I think she's like an assistant athletic director, too, as long, you know, along with on-campus recruiting. So good for her. And so uh, for this, Grant, you can make the argument that this new person, Jolie Ale, has pretty big shoes to fill, considering that the recruiting has been really good so far since Britt Venables and his staff got on campus, but I'd like to think that most of that is because of Brent Venables and the coaching staff, not necessarily the director of on-campus recruiting, uh, but I mean, it's still an important position and you just kind of hope that the recruiting continues to be prolific and you continue to see top 10 classes. Uh, this person's job is essentially what to set up on-campus visits to make sure that the, the recruits have as good of a time as possible is what I yeah, this person sets area. up the logistics of of the events of the on-campus recruiting. So, obviously, I think you want someone who is creative, who is organized, can keep everything, kind of the trains running on time, and that's what this is about. And you're going to kind of move on to this next update here about another staff member, but it's it's part of a, there's obviously a shakeup in sort of the administrative staff here. And um, I think actually, you sort of, I, I felt you you buried the lead here, the, but like you'll, you're going to get to the, the other thing about OU's new GM, that's that's the biggest news by far of the last week or so. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. There's, there's clearly a shakeup um, going on here, and I think it has a lot to do with NIL and sort of how they're um, – it looks like they're trying to get ahead of the ball and they're, they're trying to be a little bit progressive here and how they look at everything and how, you know, how they're going to manage their roster. Yeah, and perhaps I could have gone with this guy first. So J.R. Sandlin is leaving Oklahoma to go to SMU to take the role as assistant – athletic director 
and general manager. And this is according to 247 Sports, Matt Zinitz. 247 Sports is breaking all the Oklahoma offseason behind-the-scenes news. And Sandlin was the director of player personnel and recruiting at Oklahoma, so I suppose Sandlin was you know, the, the boss of the on-campus recruiting coordinator. So I suppose, you know, now that in hindsight, probably should have started with this guy. Uh, and so he's, he's gone. Uh, and I think what you were just referring to a moment ago is that OU Insider reports that Curtis Lofton, former OU linebacker Curtis Lofton, is going to be Oklahoma's new general manager. And so now I'm not going to sit here and pretend like, like, okay, let's just let's just talk normal about that. Like, I've never heard of this position in college. What is what is general manager for brand college? New. It's brand new. Oh. Brand new. This is think of it as a GM in any professional sport. He's I you know, I, I, I think there I think it's still an open question about what exactly it's gonna look like because obviously there's gonna be a difference in kind with how you, you manage a roster with the scholarship limit with NIL and college football compared to the NFL. But yeah, I, presumably this is this is Curtis Lofton who is going to be who is going to head up the idea of, of roster management. I, I, so I, is I, Curtis I, I can't think of any other way to, to think about it. So is he the is this the replacement for Sandlin or is that a different position? Do you I don't think that's clear yet. Yeah, I mean technically yes. From what I understand, they're they're reorganizing this entire department. They're not doing it the same way that they used to. The whole idea of them, you know, hiring a quote unquote GM is looking ahead to the NIL landscape and how they have to go about scouting players, scouting the transfer portal. How are we managing the roster so that these guys get paid this in the collective compared to this? And so, I mean, there's, there's no, there's no getting around this. And like we talked about this last or, or a couple of weeks ago as well. Um, college football absolutely is heading towards some sort of professional model where people are going to be employees. It's just, there's no way around it these days. Um, and you might as well get ahead of that and start start hiring guys who are going to to manage all of this stuff. I feel like that's a natural chan- transition then into a story that I wasn't sure we were going to talk about on the show, and I didn't even prep you for this, but I'm sure you heard about it because you mentioned NIL, and if that's the idea behind this shakeup by Oklahoma, and who knows if if Sandlin was going to be leaving anyways. And I mean, or if you know, Lee Davis seems like she got a pretty good offer to go to UCF. I don't know if that was going to happen. Anyway, who knows? But the, the news this week that came out where a federal judge in Tennessee granted a preliminary injunction that prohibits the NCAA from punishing athletes or boosters for negotiating NIL deals during the recruiting process or while they're in the transfer portal, which it's like not... It's not fully done yet, but it essentially makes it to where the NCAA can't enforce any sort of NIL anything. And we kind of are already, I think we all kind of understand this is how NIL has worked anyway, since it's started in 2021, that teams and, or I guess players more specifically are finding out what they're worth and they're talking to certain schools and they, I mean, maybe not every time, but a lot of the times kids are deciding on which school to go to based on which collective is going to find a, the, the best NIL deal for them money-wise. And in theory, not theory, not uh, the NCAA, technically this was not allowed. Like you weren't allowed to, to basically, the NCAA was saying that uh, inducements through NIL is something you can't use to recruit a player, whether it's through a collective or obviously through the school. And now a judge is putting an injunction saying that, yep, yeah, okay, for now you, you can keep doing that. 
And so what this does, I mean, there's a lot of things this does, but really it's just another shot to the NCAA. Again, like what's the point of this organization uh, outside? I mean, here, here's, here's the point of the NCAA, in my opinion right now. The NCAA regulates all the sports that don't make any money. <laughs> like outside of that, which is basically everything except for football and basketball, because the NCAA has very little to no power over any of the sports that actually generate revenue. Uh, and so all these other sports that don't make any money, I suppose the NCAA still has some power over them, but it's because those sports have no power because they don't make any money. <laughs> I mean, the NCAA does fully put on the NCAA tournament for basketball. They run that completely. And That's it's like also, the last thing they have to their, they have a little bit To their power. credit, to their credit, it's one of the best-run sporting events on planet Earth. So, to their credit, um, and that makes a ton of money. So, but yeah, I mean, this is a, and, and I know I'm pretty sure the NCAA put out a statement as well, essentially inviting Congress to come in and say, "Please help us and regulate this." You know, I terrible idea, a absolutely heinous, terrible idea. Uh, but of course, but that's their only. They feel like that's their only recourse because they feel like anything that they do is going to be taken to court and they're going to lose. So I like, I mean, I get it. And I'm just, I, it is what it is. And we're going to have to see it all play out, but I'm still just upset about this whole thing because it's, 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 you're gonna have to break some eggs before things sort of stabilize and things are okay. It's, it's, this is going to be a weird decade in college football for sure. It's just, I, I just can't think of anything worse than our current, you know, Congress and everything getting involved with college football. What an absolute disaster that would be. Yeah, I agree that that's stupid. And just and I'm looking at some quotes from different players in this story and the NCAA released a quote. And this is a statement that was given to ESPN's Pete Thamel. This is from the NCAA quote, turning upside down rules overwhelmingly supported by member schools will aggravate an already chaotic collegiate environment, further diminishing protections for student athletes from exploitation. The NCAA fully supports student-athletes making money from their name, image, and likeness and is making changes to deliver more benefits to student-athletes, but an endless patchwork of state laws and court opinions make clear, partnering with, uh, make clear partnering with Congress is necessary to provide stability for the future of all college athletes, end quote. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, wrong. Disagree. Uh, it's so weird to be the NCAA saying, oh, we're – we're all for NIL, but also you can't use NIL in inducements to come to certain schools. And that's kind of the argument the other side is like that's limiting these players' ability to make money by get, you know, getting these schools and collectives in trouble if they're going to go out and use the free market to figure out how much they're worth. And I know part of that, it's like, okay, if you don't like this, you're not a big fan of this, these new rules and the new era of college football and college sports, I get it. It's drastically different in a way than it has been but it's not going back this is the way it is and it, you know, either it's gonna it's gonna find a happy medium and it's still gonna be college sports or eventually it's gonna be some sort of pro model and we'll, we'll have to decide if we still like it or don't like it but i think at this point in my opinion like the you know the state of tennessee i think a couple of attorneys generals of a couple states brought this lawsuit and i think they're on the right and uh, the NCAA is, doesn't, is not going to win this battle. And calling on Congress to try to find out some sort of solution, that's, that's a losing argument in my opinion. That ain't gonna, that's no. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think it's all a mess. I think it's all a mess. I think I think a lot of the times the lawsuits that are being brought against the NCAA in these regards are in bad faith. I think they're frivolous a lot of the time. Um, it just it is what it is. But they also intellectually, the you know those lawsuits are winning the argument. You know, so it it is what it is. All of it, I, I still think, is just nobody is thinking about what is best for the institution of college football. Not a single person is, and that's. I think that's I think that's really really unfortunate. Yeah, the I think the question is though can you think about what's best for college football or college sports? Is that something that overrides what technically is best for college athletes and the rights of college athletes to make money off of their name image likeness? I think that's where it comes down to. And there's so much nuance in this. I mean, most as we've talked about countless times on this show, I mean and we're in agreement on this, and it's just I think it's just fact that the vast majority of college athletes are not worth much. They just aren't. I mean, they're, the scholarships probably are you know, more than they're actually worth. And granted, I mean, some schools may pay certain teams, you know, depending on the agreements that they have with certain, I don't know, dealerships. or Maybe collectives can get full rosters, something that everybody doesn't necessarily – wouldn't necessarily be able to get on their own. That's just different. But the vast majority of kids are not worth more than their scholarship. But there are some kids that are worth more. And so that's kind of finding that balance of, you know, how do you... Yeah, that's, what, I, that's what bugs me. The, 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 it, it's going to start going to... The rules are going to be catered to the guys who are going to make a ton of money anyway. And I... It's... I just think it's really unfortunate because we just don't know what the fallout is going to be. And is it like, is, is it worth it so that guys who are going to play in the NFL can now make millions of dollars in college. Is, is it worth it for those guys to make millions of dollars of college if tens of thousands of other college athletes who aren't playing football don't get to play college sports anymore? And like, and I get it. We're getting super far ahead of it, and like, I'm sure there's there's a way to work all of that stuff to make it work. But it's not going to be the same. And you know, I mean, things changing can be good as well. But I just I I, I genuinely genuinely believe. That what drives dollars in college sports are the institutions themselves. That's not to say that's not to say that the players don't deserve like any sort of cut cut of that stuff intellectually, especially if the big TV revenue. But people are watching on Saturdays because of their connections to the institutions. It is the institution that drives the eyeballs, not the players. And okay, it's like I, I want to be very clear. It's not it it's not a majority that drives the it's it's not the players that drives a majority of the eyeballs it is the history and the institutions it is the university of michigan the university of alabama it's not mike sanistrill which is why people are watching this stuff does that make sense yeah I, and i agree with you and i think that's a big reason why i just don't i'm not worried about this i think it's gonna be fine i think people are still gonna enjoy college athletics i mean it's and the popularity is gonna keep getting higher and higher man like with this expanded playoff it's going to be even more popular the NCAA tournament's always popular you hear these stories about how women's college basketball keeps getting more popular I, I'm not sure what that means I mean college softball it's seemingly it's more popular than it has been in the past how popular I don't know but I mean maybe it is more popular so I think I think all of this stuff is going to continue to probably 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 rise and we'll just kind of get used to it so I think it'll be it will and you know I mean and Video game is coming out in July and all, and it's probably going to be the, the highest selling NCAA football video game of all time. I mean, it's going to be a huge, huge seller. 
it's I mean it's yeah it's second most popular sport in the country. A lot of people are going to be interested in that game. Um, which I think I think the video game is actually a really really good vehicle for players to get um, to get noticed and to get some sort of publicity as well. Like I, I think that's like that's a good that's a good area where I think NIL is probably a good thing. Um, we'll see. I, it's 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 all I, I I really do think it's all you know to be seen and and hopefully it's one of those things where we kick off in the falls. We we sort of forget about these things and it all feels like college football, but. I just a lot of different people with a lot of different, a lot of different intentions, a lot of different priorities are are running sort of the conversation in college football right now. And a lot of those guys are agents. A lot of those guys are, uh, I I really do think journalists, people who have a lot of influence writing about the sport as well, and also athletic directors as well who like money that to, to come into their coffers. And um, I just I I really wish there were people who were nostalgic and were and just and and loved college football and that was their number one priority what can we do to to make sure this institution works for everybody um and not just the people at the very very top who are going to make a ton of money anyway with whatever they do in life you mentioned the video game there's been some more news that's come out in the last week about that i i want to maybe kick that to a different show whenever I have more time to look into it. I mean, I know that there's reports out about now how the players can opt in, how that's going to work, but uh, I don't want to discuss it right now because I'm not fully briefed on love to do a, uh, ins and outs. do a little bit on air production meeting here. I'd love to do a, what if we just do a, a an episode where the, num- the a topic is the video game and we can just kind of put together like wish lists and stuff. Like what would our ideal NCAA football video game look like? Kind of like that. Just get everybody excited for it. Because I, I, those, those conversations are kind of fun, and it's the off season. Yeah, that could be a good... Let's see. Maybe before the big reveal in May or something. If they're going to... So maybe like something like after spring practice or even during spring practice. Because, see, spring game is April 20th. So perhaps maybe like the first week of May or something we can do. Yeah, that could be fun. Yeah, we could do that. Could be good. Could be a good time, you know, I mean, because, you know, it's... Presumably, a lot of people who listen to this show are probably going to dabble into that game a little bit or have in the past and, and are very familiar with it. And uh, there's been a lot of video games that have come out since then, a lot of ideas, a lot of interesting things. And uh, I mean, that's, that's been, it, it's been a theme now. I, I, there's a lot of people, especially online, if you're on social media, who are just really, really fired up about that game. All right, let's turn our attention to the college football playoff. And so this week... Uh, the 12-team playoff format for this upcoming season has been set, and it's going to be five conference champions and seven at-large bids. And the reason this is news is because previously it was supposed to be six and six, six conference champions, six at-large bids, but then now the Pac-12 is gone. So uh, there's one fewer big conference. And so also the ESPN reported that the idea of expanding to a 14-team playoff, which would begin in the 2026 season, was also discussed by the CFP group or a committee or whatever the heck they're calling themselves during meetings they had in Dallas this week. And so the current so like a little background. So the current contract for the college football playoff runs out after the 2025 season. So number one, it's actually pretty cool just based off of how this has all worked, that they were actually able to amend and edit the playoff before the contract was up. Because originally I thought that like as long as this contract's going, they're not going to change the four-team model. And 
Thankfully, they did. So we're getting to 12 teams a couple of years before I thought we ever would because this contract runs through 2025 season. Uh, so, in, But now that there's going to be a new contract to negotiate, it sounds like they're trying to get everything laid out and set for the next contract, which is like going to be like, an, for some reason, they do eight-year deals. I just, why so many years? I just so, like, do four do four years don't do eight like what if you need to change stuff I, but i guess they technically did change stuff in the middle of this contract so i guess it's possible to change things so uh the the biggest notable thing is grant i mean i've talked about on this podcast how my perfect model and it's never going to happen most likely just because we can't have nice things but whatever the fcs does i want to see the fbs do and the fcs does 24 teams FBS doing 24 teams, again, probably never going to happen. But, heck, I mean, we're going to 12, and they're already talking about 14. I mean, they're slowly increasing it potentially. So, heck, you never know. Maybe maybe if something drastic happens, and maybe in, in my lifetime, I will get my wish of a 2014 playoff. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I, I, I think I just – we so much has changed just in the last year, especially with – I mean, the SEC and the Big Ten now just utterly dominating the sport. I mean, there's just... And so a, a vast majority of at-large teams now, I mean, the Big Ten and the SEC is going to make up a majority of the playoff teams from in, in perpetuity from here on out. And um, I, it's... It, it, it's it, it, they're going to have to they're going to have to break some eggs here in the, here in the first few years. It's, it's going to be a lot of trial and error. It's going to be a weird thing because... Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong on this, Lee, but I'm pretty sure that the top four buys in this 12-team structure, I think they have to be conference champions, from what I understand. Which means, and, I, and I'm, like, I'm already thinking about this right now, but it's very obvious to me in that setup that you could definitely make an argument that being the five or the six seed is, is, is the way to go. It's by far the best setup to be the five or the six seed. Because that means you are going to get a home, if you're the five seed, you are going to get a home playoff game and all of the revenue and all of the good vibes and momentum that comes from that. If you're the five seed, you're going to be playing against the group of five winner as the 12 seed. And that should be a fair, I mean, a fairly easy game. If you're the five seed, presumably you're the team that lost in the SEC championship game. So you're not necessarily going to be playing the group of five team. Depends on how good that team is because uh, not necessarily, but I think most, I, most years that probably will be the case yeah, though. Yeah, probably. Um, and if you're, and if you're the sixth seed, you're going to be playing the last Power 5 team that that got in to the playoffs, and you're also going to have a home game. But then if you think ahead to the next round in the quarterfinals, you're going to be playing the champion of the Big 12 or the ACC, which is a pretty good chance of being two of the worst teams in the 12-team field. Hmm. So, like, they, they actually need to... I. It's, why would they? And why would they you play can, the? You can watch Big Twelve or ACC title. Like, why would that be set in stone? I don't. I don't get that part. Because the number one and number two seeds are always going to be an SEC or Big Ten team, always, unless there's unless there's just like so much parity in one year of the SEC and Big Ten, and the champion has two losses. I guess. Oh, okay. Which even even in a situation like that, strength of schedule and quality win metrics are going to be so lopsided for the SEC and the Big Ten. That it, that I don't think there's, it, it's going to take a lot of weird, fluky occurrences for an SEC or Big Ten team for those two teams not to be the top two seeds every single year. So here, the thing is, though, yeah, okay, 
I don't think there's a problem with saying, oh, man, there's going to be mostly SEC or Big Ten teams, mainly because uh, how many total? I mean, it's OU in Texas. I guess six six of these teams have not always been SEC or Big Ten teams. Because what did the Big Ten get? What, four Pac-12 teams? And then OU in Texas. So, like, six of the teams haven't always been Big Ten or SEC. So, to me, they're not even really – yeah, technically they're Big Ten or SEC, but they're still teams that – historically have been outside those conferences so it's like all right well like if washington or oregon i mean yeah okay it's a big 10 team but it's it's a team on the west coast it's not necessarily really a big it's my point is it's like different it's it's not your traditional big 10 teams your traditional sc teams it's still like new different types of teams that can still make it uh and then you have the acc and big 12 i mean who knows what's gonna happen with them i mean yeah it might get maybe one just the winner but you never know there could be every once in a while they'll get maybe one or They'll probably get an at-large team, both of those conferences. They'll get one each, and I mean, they might. Fine. They might. Like I'm, j- I'm just saying though. There's a. It's. I, I think right. I mean, they should have done this right. They should have gotten rid of the the top four seeds being conference champions. Um, and and this is like, and this I would not have thought this a year ago, before, before all of the Pac-12 teams went to the Big Ten, and before all of that, like I. I don't know. It's, it's going to be weird. It's going to be really weird. There's going to be so much trial and error, and, and they're going to have to figure it out. There's going to be teams that get screwed with their draw, absolutely, just based off of weird rules. So let's see. It's yeah, the top four, top four get a buy. And so I think it's, it's so if there's five, it's the five high, highest ranked conference champs that get. I guess an automatic bid or whatever you and so that means yeah, that the, it'll, the it'll fifth conference least, champ is going to be the group of five winner. Okay, yeah, okay, and then there'll be seven. Okay, and yes, and to get a buy, you have to be a conference champion. So, which is why, which is why Notre Dame can't ever get a buy. Uh, I and you know my my idea for a twenty four team playoff before all of the you know these shenanigans happened, and this this was when we still had regional conferences. We don't have regional conferences anymore. Um, my, my idea for that was yeah, you can't like you, you just have to seed them like the BCS or something or like with the committee, you can't, you can't, you can't emphasize conference championships. You just have to, you literally do just have to seed them by who they played, how, how hard their schedule was. If you, if you win your conference, you, you get in the tournament, but that doesn't determine your seed very much like the, the college baseball tournament is, is how that's like as well. And so I, I think, I think they're at the point now where they should probably just go to that. And what would that be again? Sorry, is that a how many teams? I mean, it would just. I mean, well, I mean, in the twelve teamer, they they should just the committee should just rank them one to twelve, and you oh. shouldn't be guaranteed a buy oh. based off of a conference championship. I got because like I, I'm. I don't know this for a fact. I just think from what we know about how college football is aligned right now and how it looks, the Big Twelve and the ACC champion next next season and and for the next year is is a really good chance are going to be in the bottom four teams in terms of quality of the playoff field. And they're going to get a buy. I got, yeah, I got what you're saying. And that's, it's, it's going to be better. I mean, it's better than we've had. I mean, the fact that we're going to get 12 is cool. And now they're talking about 14, I, man. And just to refresh everyone's memory, if anyone cares, like at the FCS level, there's 10 conferences. They do 10. Every conference champ makes the tournament. And then there's 14 at large. 
So you win your conference, you're in, and there's no conference championship games. And that's a big reason why it's probably never going to happen in FBS because they all love their conference title games, even though they're useless, and they're trying to make them mean more. But, man, they're dumb. But, I mean, can you imagine, you know, a 2014 playoff? Yeah, you'd have nine conference champs because there's only nine conferences now because the Pac-12's gone. Then you got 15 at-large bids, and then there's no there's no questioning over like oh who because like if you win your if you're in the MAC and you win your conference championship, hey, you get a chance to play for a national title. Are you gonna win it ever? Probably not, but at least you get a shot. I mean, in college basketball right now, all these mid-major schools they never win at all, but they get a chance technically. And that's what's cool about it. I mean, you never know. That's what's that's what makes it so I mean, unique. I agree, but I'm at the part now where the sport is going. They they should not even guarantee the group of five being this thing anymore. It just, it doesn't make sense anymore. Well, if they did especially it with, that with many the transfer teams, portal and the, then they could, I, but but yeah, exactly. But especially with the transfer portal now, and like there's been studies now, and it's, this is exactly what we said before all this went in. All conference group of five players are getting poached aggressively. It is happening. So like the gap is is only con- the gap is only going to continue to get worse. Yeah, and that's that goes back to the the rule where you can transfer without sitting out a year. You know, it's that was the the deterrent for people to maybe not ah, maybe I don't want to sit out a year. So then a, a good group of five school has a good player, and then he doesn't want to sit out an entire year just because he wants to transfer to Michigan. And now that's not the case. But I did want to move it on to the the discussions of already maybe expanding it from twelve to fourteen, and. I I don't really understand the the 14 number grant. So like let's let's play it out. So let's let's say it's the same thing. You get um you know five conference champions and then instead of seven at large bids you'd have nine at large bids. So like an ESPN story says that a 14 team playoff would likely mean that the highest ranked conference champs get a bye which then incentivizes conference championship games. And then from there, it would play out like this 12-team playoff format. But I don't understand how the math works out with a 14-team playoff. So, like, follow me. Like, let's say that the top four teams get a bye. But I guess the highest-ranked, highest-ranked conference champs get a bye. Okay, anyways, let's say the top four teams get a bye. There'd have to be more. There'd have to be, like, like eight teams would have to get a bye. Oh, yeah. See, right? Or it'd be 10. It'd have to be, it's like, it's like it'd be a play. It'd be like a first four or something. Oh, maybe, yeah. But it's not clear on that, though, because you couldn't do it with the top four teams getting a bye or even the top five teams. It wouldn't make any sense because there's always going to be one team that's left out for a game. I, I guess you could, do, you could do six byes, and the math could work I mean, out. Aren't there, that, four, there, there are 14 teams in the NFL playoffs right now. How do they do it? That's exactly how they would do it in, the, in college. Well, there's there's seven in each conference, so there's uh, there's just one. So there would be two teams conference. that get a buy. Two teams would get a buy then. But right? that's how say, that would work. But the ESPN story says that the 14 team playoff would likely mean that the highest ranked conference champs get a buy. So I guess does that mean that the two highest ranked conference champs? I guess the SEC and the Big Ten would get a buy. That's what that means. That's what they're. That's that's probably. I mean, that's probably the first like. Okay. That's what they're pitching at first. And you know what? Like it's, and I I don't like this. Like the more I think about it, like the consolidation of the SEC and the Big Ten sucks. It's 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 good for the TV product. I I just don't know if it's good for the sport. I don't know if it's good for the regionality of the sport. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, this, this is what it's going to be. I mean, they're, they're going to control the sport. It is going to be the SEC and the Big Ten. There's no way around it. Oh uh, yeah, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it would be the the top two get a buy, and then the other which will always yeah okay, which will pretty much always be the SEC and the Big Ten. Yeah, well, pretty. I mean, and always the SEC. It'll always be the SEC as as the number for, one team. for the last ten fifteen years. It's always been the SEC for the most part doing everything, anyways. So now you just throw. A, I mean, the fact that you throw a different conference in there actually, in a way, and that an improvement, <laughs> hey, a little more parity. It's not just one conference. At least it's two. And again, it's some of the teams in the Big Ten. They're out west, man. It's not even like really. They just happened to be in the Big Ten because their conference was a joke and had to fold. Because oh gosh, it just what, they don't care about football out there. I mean, I just think there's 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 three teams in the Big Ten that care about football the way that the SEC does. Ohio State, Michigan, and Oregon. That's it. Penn State. You can maybe throw Penn State in there too. Hmm. That's kind of not fair. I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of schools that care about football, but like nobody cares about football like the SEC and just sports in general. <laughs> I mean, whether it's, I mean, baseball comes to mind, softball, and that, I mean, which is why, which is why the SEC is running everything now because they they care more. It's it, <laughs> it it just it is what it is. Okay, let's change gears now and get into the the you know the large portion of our show we're gonna if you're interested in this we're gonna go over some of our preseason predictions from the 2023 season and i went back and and looked and so we had a couple of big season previews we broke it up into two different podcasts and so we're gonna go over our you know, our thoughts from really when we came back because we had a huge break you know about a six month break we came back and we had some thoughts Talked about the OU's win total. And then we had some unanswerable questions, and we kind of gave semi-predictions. And then we talked about the Big 12 and the national scene and some narratives. And so we're going to get to some of that stuff in a different show. But for now, I, I did want to bring up a couple of things that stood out to me. So I went back and listened to our first episode when we returned last August after a long hiatus. And we talked about Oklahoma's win total which was set at nine and a half. And so right off the gate, or right out of the gate, I should say, uh, with predictions, you and I were, were wrong because we were both on the under. We both leaned to under nine and a half wins for OU. And of course, the overhit when OU went 10 and two. And so just a couple of notes. Uh, Grant, this is kind of interesting. I mean, and I know you've totally changed your tune on this, but that first episode we had in the middle of August, you were you said that you were just you were a big skeptic of Dylan Gabriel. You weren't sure if you could elevate Oklahoma to where they needed to be. I think he probably answered that question throughout the season that he uh, certainly improved. <laughs> he did. He was outstanding. And I've, I've you know I said it any time or any opportunity I could get this year how great he was. He was very good when he was given the opportunity to you know to will OU to win to win the game for them. He came through every single time. Unfortunately, was not given that opportunity against Oklahoma State or Kansas. So we both whiffed on the, the win total. We were happy to be wrong about that. Happy to be wrong about the under. Good to see Oklahoma go 10-2. and two. Would have been nice if they were 12-0, and 0, but alas. So we, we both said that the biggest question mark on offense was the wide receivers. And you said that you didn't think the group was all that good. <laughs> 
Uh, but you also said that Drake Stoops is probably the best one of the bunch, which I think technically turned out to be, I mean, statistically was true. He had the, the best season. And you gave the coaching staff, Grant, the OU coaching staff, a lot of criticism for not properly addressing the skill positions in the offseason in the transfer portal. Now, in hindsight, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, on the uh, for wide receiver, I mean, I was totally wrong. This The wide receiver group wasn't only the best position group on the team. It was one of the best position groups in college football. Um, I, I was totally wrong. They, they did uh, address the wide receiver position in the portal. They took Michigan's best receiver off of their roster until Andrew Anthony got hurt. He was great for OU. And uh, then the emergence of Nick Anderson. Nick Anderson was great. Nick Anderson was was is always, was OU's best receiver last season. Um, when, but I mean, Drake Stoops was great too. He was very good. And then you know, I, I think we were all kind of disappointed with with Jalil Farouk, but he also kind of did just Jalil Farouk things. And uh, Jaden Gibson, whenever he was given an opportunity, pound for pound, he was just outstanding a season ago. And I think he's he's one of the big reasons why we're we're feeling really really good about that group going into next year as well. Two really big bodied big play receivers and Nick Anderson, Jaden Gibson. Uh, I was over the moon about the receivers this past season, but if you actually want to talk about the skill positions as a whole, it absolutely, absolutely counts at running back. The running back position this season was just not good. They, they were not good enough for a lot of different reasons. Um, I think you and I, over the course of the season, identified DeMarco Murray as just being, I, I don't know what you're doing. He, he just, he couldn't really figure out who to play. In the first five, six games of the season, Tawi Walker was so very, very obviously RB1, clearly the best running back on the roster. They refused to make that happen. They refused to, you know, to make reality match up with with what our eyes were seeing, what everyone else was seeing. And then, you know, I mean, Sachuk did, of course, start to establish himself in the second half of the year. But also, I mean, Sachuk did prove that he's he's kind of made a glass. He is obviously an injury concern. And they should have known that going into the season. I don't know what's going on with Javante Barnes. But, yeah, they absolutely needed more juice at the running back position this season. That was That is why the running game couldn't really get it going because they just weren't very good at that position. Yeah, good stuff. I'll start at the top. I'll start back with the wide receivers from my perspective. And you know, I wasn't as down on the receivers going into the year, and particularly is because I just had some blind faith in Nick Anderson and Jaden Gibson. I thought they would be good just based off of – I mean, I was hoping they'd be good – after what I had seen from them and just kind of what they what their measurables were and their potential. Uh, but at the same time, though, I and both of us didn't expect a whole lot out of Andrew Anthony, and that was dead wrong. The guy was really good before he got hurt you know, for the first half of the year, and then him getting injured, it's crazy. I mean, uh, their offense changed drastically, and if he would have stayed healthy, I don't know. Maybe they do win every single game. Maybe they do go 12-0 and in the regular season. He, I mean, he must have been – it seems like he maybe was that important, especially to uh, to Drake Stoops, uh, important to Dylan Gabriel as like a security blanket. So that was a massive injury. Also on the wide receiver front, you may recall in you know August preseason camp, Venables was really pumping up Gavin Freeman, and I didn't buy into that for a second. And I'm happy to not have bought into that. I mean, granted, they tried, you know, they. They tried to get him going way too many times. First game of the year, his first touch, he goes for a touchdown, a punt return. It's like, oh, wow. And then from there on out, it, he was giving, uh, given so many opportunities and really didn't do a whole lot with him. So that was, that was weird. Uh, how about the tight end room? Uh, we were right about that. <laughs> I mean, talked about how bad that was, and it, it was bad. It was awful. Um, 
So that's the wide receivers and tight end room. And then as far as the running backs go, that's what's interesting is, you know, you talked about how they weren't good enough. We were both positive and high on the running back room because of Gavin Sawchuk and Javante Barnes. And in one of those episodes in August, you said that you said if Marcus Major is taking carries away from Tawi Walker and Caleb Hicks, then why? And you were saying that in terms of we knew we assumed obviously that the top two guys would be Sawchuk and Barnes, and then Tawi and Caleb Hicks would kind of fill in after those those top two. And so you were you were saying you know, if if Marcus Major is taking care carries from those guys, what are we doing here? And it turns out that he ended up being the starter for half the season. Marcus Major was. And then also, I was higher on Javante Barnes in August because we had found out that he played a lot of 2022 injured. And then, of course, I get high on Barnes and as opposed to like where I mean, I like Barnes, but I was kind of skeptical. Like, I just don't know. He's he's very he's very stiff. He, he can't make anybody miss. And then who knows what happened to him this past year? I don't know. He's still on the team. He's on the roster, but he he barely played. So uh, very weird with where you know, we were kind of like uh, not sure about the wide receivers. The wide receiver group was terrific, and we were very high in the running back room, and the running back room was an absolute – I don't even – it was so inconsistent. It was, it was mismanaged, and then we were both spot on about the tight ends, but that, that was easy. Everyone was on that. Everyone was like, man, this tight end room is not good, and it wasn't. So how about defense? A couple of things that uh, I noticed – you absolutely nailed this one, Grant. You said that we would not really see any of Reggie Grimes in 2023. Well, <laughs> that was basically true. Um, how about this? We, as far as the linebackers go, we weren't really sure what to think about Connor Near from D2 Ferris State, but we did kind of assume that he'd be part of the two deep, and it turned out that dude couldn't get on the field at all. Like, I don't think he played... <laughs> really and he was like a d2 all-american kind of just shows you the difference and i guess the, the two qualities of football uh, and then also on the defensive side we asked the question on the podcast is it possible that the biggest letdown candidate given the expectation on the defensive side would have been disan mccullough and you you said yeah and for the first half of the year he was playing a decent amount but he kind of disappeared right after he couldn't really get on the field much because they what they you know the Harrington got hurt but then the cheetah position they ended up playing a lot more Kendall Dolby and McCullough just didn't really have a spot and so we didn't see much of him it seemed like the latter half of the year and so that's enough you know a big question mark going into 2024 is what are they gonna do with this on McCullough yeah I mean he's kind of a he's almost a positionless player at this time and that's what I was scared of I mean him coming in and playing cheetah we know that Cheetah has to play a lot of pass coverage. He just doesn't have the body type of a guy who would who would appear to be good at that. But also when McCullough was out there, I mean when he was when he was tasked with you know with making tackles a lot, you know, around the line of scrimmage and being in the box, I thought he was pretty good. Um and so I did too. how do you come up with yeah, you know, how, how do you come up with some sort of way to leverage that and how do you protect him in coverage? We'll see. I you know, I, I, I did think it was odd that they never really used him as any sort of pass rusher which is what he excelled at at Indiana as a freshman. Uh, but, he, I mean, he was really good at running. I mean, he basically eliminates sort of like the, the swing pass from the slot when he's out there. Um, There's some other things that, that he does a really good job of. He made the tackle. I mean, him and Billy Bowman made the tackle on that goal line stand against Texas on Xavier Worthy. Um, and he, you know, he, 
he made up a lot of space in a very short amount of time to get to that spot to 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 take out Xavier Worthy. And so he's he's a useful guy. I just think whenever you're going to ask him to to cover someone, that's probably going to be a bad time for OU. Okay, so on to our big season preview where we made predictions and we changed it up quite a bit. In the past, we had had really specific things we predicted, like who's going to be the leading receiver and who's going to lead the team in rushing and all these. And it's, it's good podcast stuff, but we got to the point where it's like, okay, this seems a bit monotonous. Let's change it up. So we, this past year, we did some unanswerable questions, just kind of like, okay, what's on our mind? And we're probably not going to know the answer to this stuff until the end of the season. And we kind of gave our thoughts on whether or not it was going to be this or that. And so it's kind of an unusual prediction look back, but just to kind of get back to what we were talking about, I think it's kind of interesting. And so our first question was, will the offensive tempo change? Because we all talked about how fast the offense was in 2022. Didn't really like it. That's Jeff Levy style. And the thought was, all right, they went six and seven in 2022. They got to help out this defense. They got to slow it up. They got to give the defense some you know, some breathers and, and play more complimentary football, which is a, a term that's been beaten into the ground. And so, Grant, you did say that, yes, you thought that the tempo would change up to a degree. Uh, you said to what degree, we don't know. You said that you didn't expect a major overhaul, overhaul on offense, but uh, and, and also you still expected to be frustrated at times by the tempo. But the fact that Venables seemed to acknowledge that something needed to change, you thought that that meant that there would be a change in tempo. And on my end, I said, no, I did not think there was going to be much of a difference. I said, maybe here and there. But my reasoning was that Jeff Levy and offensive coordinators are stubborn and they do what they do. And so in that particular prompt, I think you were right and I was wrong. I think we did see a difference, although I do think it was kind of a slight difference in tempo. But the stats bear it out. Oklahoma was slower in 2023 compared to 2022 and did run fewer plays. So Jeff Levy did change it up just a little bit. Yep, and I thought they were better situationally this past season as well. For instance, like, you know, in, in third and medium, second and medium, third and long, they were a lot better this past season. Still feel like tempo killed them in their two losses, though. <laughs> and just to back up how the tempo did change, so I just want to give you some numbers before you know, the previous, I think, five seasons of Levy calling plays, his teams averaged about 77 plays per game or 77 snaps, same thing, snaps per game. So in Jeff Levy's games last season, so I'm not counting the bowl game, OU averaged 74 and a half plays per game. So two and a half fewer snaps, a whole two and a half fewer snaps in uh, 2023. But the big difference ended up being time of possession. The time of possession between 2022 average and 2023 was almost three minutes, which is huge. I mean, OU was almost dead last in time of possession in 2022. They had the ball 26 minutes and 11 seconds on average, which was 127th in the nation. And that improved to 29 minutes and three seconds last year for 91st overall. So they were a little bit slower. They held the ball a little bit longer. But you're right. I mean, as as good as the offense was, as awesome the stats are, I mean, it was a top five offense statistically in college football, yet it still had 
its problems when they really needed the offense to perform. And that's that's the the benefit of watching every single snap and seeing every single game and not just looking at stats. All right, next one. We asked on the podcast, will Jackson Arnold play significant snaps? And so the meaning behind that, just to make it more clear, it almost says, as in, will Jackson Arnold start some games in 2023? Because, okay, sure, he might play significant snaps, but maybe in garbage time or something. And so we were both kind of on the same page. We both said, no, uh, we don't. Like I said, no, I don't see him playing meaningful snaps unless Dylan Gabriel gets injured. And you also said no, but you did, you did say that there was a pretty good bet that DG would get banged up in 2023 just based on his history. And to Gabriel's credit, Gabriel, with the exception of the BYU game, was in, where we saw Jackson Arnold play an entire half of football, Dylan Gabriel was healthy all year long. So we were both correct about that one on the Jackson Arnold front just because we knew how good Jackson Arnold was supposed to be but didn't play significant snaps until obviously the bowl game. So that BYU game was wild. Totally, like, I, I don't really think about that very often, but remember just how ugly and terrible that game was? Uh-huh, yeah, it was horrible. Not fun. All right, next prompt. We asked, will the OU defense improve by at least 40 yards allowed per game and or improve by a half yard per play allowed? And so, and I use those numbers because that's how much the Clemson defense improved from year one to year two when Brent Venables was there. In fact, that Clemson defense improved on the yards per play by like 0.6 yards per play, so even more than a half yard. And so, Grant, you said that there's a pretty good bet that they'd improve by 40 yards per game allowed. Uh, But you did not make a specific prediction about the yards per play metric, and neither did I. And I said, well, they better improve by 40 yards per game because the defense was so bad in 2022. Well, we were right about that, I, I suppose. I mean, the defense made a giant jump in raw yards per game allowed. They went from 461 in 2022 to 389 last year, which was a 72-yard improvement. So very good there. And they also improved on the yards per play allowed metric but not quite by a half yard. They improved from uh, 5.75 and 22 to 5.4 allowed in 23. So that's a 0.35 yard improvement. So uh, not quite a half yard, but still a, a solid improvement in yards per play. And, and that's, I mean, we saw it out through, you know, definitely the first half of the season, not as much as the second half of the season, but the Oklahoma defense was significantly better in 2023 compared to 2022. Hey man, do that again. Improve by thirty-five basis points again, and uh, you're looking a lot better. Looking a lot, lot better there. Yeah, if OU can make the same type of improvement, get down to about five yards per play this year, especially in the SEC, and you know, instead of three eighty-nine allowed, maybe you're you're allowing three three sixty, three fifty. Yeah, that's pretty salty. We'll take it. So I'd say that uh, we, we each got one of those right. Didn't really, didn't really guess on the other one. This next one was kind of hard to measure and kind of curious what your thoughts are on this. We, we asked this because it was a game situation thing, and you know, I'd always kind of give Venable's criticism over his game management, his timeouts, everything. We asked, will Oklahoma be a better team after halftime? 
i.e., will Brent Venables and his coaching staff be better at coaching in game? And didn't really give much of a prediction on this one. I just said I hope I hope so. <laughs> and you didn't really give much of an answer either. So what do you think? Do you think that Oklahoma was better in twenty three after halftime? I mean, yeah, probably. Yeah. Just because they went they went ten and two and anyway, that was one of the talking points during the season. It's like, hey, they, they would have lost this game last season. I think the Cincinnati game was one where we, we felt that way. Um remember the the first half of Iowa State was weird and then they just completely buried them in the second half. Um obviously they you know they, they win on the very last drive of the game against Texas. So yeah, they they were able to they were able to kind of pull a win out of their butt in Provo against BYU. So yeah, I mean, I they they did a better job. Whether or not like the adjustments were good, or I don't know, but like the fortitude of the team and their ability to pull out wins, like when they couldn't do that in twenty twenty two. Yeah, I think it was pretty clearly better. Yeah, okay, you're probably right. That's some good examples. I mean, the West Virginia game was really good. They they dominated the second half against West Virginia. That was another one. You mentioned Iowa State. You mentioned Cincinnati. Those are both very good. Came through, you know, they, against UCF too. They came through and they won that game when they were yeah. they farted around. <laughs> yeah, uh, the bad ones were Kansas. You know, they led at halftime, lost that in the second half. I mean, second half of Bedlam, very inconsistent. Technically, they they tied because they were trailing by a field goal at halftime. So, but they they couldn't overcome Oklahoma State. Then the bowl game, I mean, they total collapse in the you know last quarter and change in that one, so that wasn't good. But yeah, I but yeah I'm trying to think. Like they were like they went. Yeah, I mean, I think in I, I think in in such games this past season they went like three and three in those games, you know, and that, that includes their three losses. And last year, what they probably went like one and four in such games. I'd say the one that they won was the Iowa State game. Okay, so yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right. I think they did improve on that. The last couple prompts are pretty interesting, kind of fun to talk about back in the day. And, and now that we have the entire season behind us and some off season, I'm, it's just it's more interesting. So we asked, will we know by the end of the 2023 season if Jeff Lebby is the right man for the OC job? And Grant, you said that yes, we will. He says if the offense takes a step back. That's all we need to know. And I said that it's unclear, but I added that if the offense is better, it's more consistent, helps the defense out, and it's all with Dylan Gabriel, and he looks like he's playing better, then, then yes, we have our answer. He's the guy. So it's interesting because the offense definitely was better than it was in 2022, and obviously now Jeff Lebby is gone. He moved on to the Mississippi State head coaching job. But I think, I think we did learn, Grant, if he was the man for the job and long-term, I think the answer was no. <laughs> right? I agree with that. I, I totally agree. And I think you can – I think it's different. You know, you got – there are two regular season losses. I think I and, – and I'm not the only person who feels like this in the, the OU Podcast Cinematic Universe. I, I put that, that loss in Lawrence squarely on Jeff Lebby's shoulders – that's they lost the game because of him. Um, Bedlam was was a little more weird. Bedlam was a little bit weird. I, I I thought Bedlam was more of a a symptom of all of the weird miscommunication. And at the time, I was saying you know the incongruence on offense between Jeff Lebby, Demarco Murray, sort of just like who is out there, who's playing. Which of course, I mean Jeff, I mean 
Jeff Lebby is the leader of the offense. That's on his shoulders. And of course, by extension, that's on Brent Venables' shoulders as well. But no, I just, I, Jeff Lebby, like we said, he is, he can call up some really good plays. I, I like his, I like his propensity for double moves and to take shots downfield. I think that's really helpful. I think that's really difficult to defend for a lot of college offenses. I, I hate his tempo and I hate his extremely simple run game and his predictability in said run game. Yeah, I do too. And uh, end up being a problem. And I also hate the RPO. RPOs suck. RPOs suck. As like a base offense, I, I yeah, I'd, I'd like to mix them in and out, but not as your base offense. And as far as the running game goes, not who knows if this is him or DeMarco Murray or both. But yeah, I mean, not figuring out your best guys, that's a problem. And so you mix that in with a simple run game. And so I guess we'll never know what it's like or what it would have been like if he was calling the plays for a full season with Jackson Arnold as the quarterback. I was I was looking forward to seeing that in year one in the SEC to, to determine like a final thought on Jeff Levy because of that, you know, maybe with a guy that has more of a ceiling than Dylan Gabriel, maybe that offense will be better and they can just do a lot more things. We'll, we'll never know. But yeah, I think I'd seen enough. I mean, I just that style of offense. Yes, it's successful. It can be, but I'd rather try something different going to the SEC. And to be fair, I mean, Jeff Levy's style, I think, and what he does, I think you got to give him credit for things like the Texas win because the fact that their tempo is so high and they're always going fast. I will say that's the best part about his offense is that anytime Oklahoma was in any sort of two-minute drill or one-minute drill, they were always very comfortable because they're always going fast. And so when they were in that tight you know, couple minutes left against Texas, yeah, it's, it's a crazy setting, but they practice that all the time, and there's a lot of value in that. And Dylan Gabriel being a veteran player also helps too. But being in a situation where you're always going fast, I like that about his offense because any time that you need to, to score fast, their odds are better, I think, than a lot of teams because that's what they, they're, they're good at that. So I like that part of it. Hopefully, under Seth Luttrell, they're also very good in the two-minute drill, and they, they are comfortable there. I, who knows, without having tempo all the time. So I, I did want to acknowledge that. It's like that part of Levy's offense, I, I think in those scenarios, those situations, it definitely helped a lot. And I think it helped in that game-winning drive against Texas where Dylan Gabriel and was super comfortable and everybody was super comfortable. And that was, that was bang, 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 easy. Just like that, they were in the red zone in like four plays, which was, which was awesome. That was great. Um, also neglect to mention that they were in 11 personnel a vast majority of the time, and Austin Stogner was on the field so much this past <laughs> season. And I'm, it's, that's just not defensible, especially when, your best, especially when your best position group on the entire team are your pass catchers and your wide receivers. Yeah. I... And and I just I, I don't really feel like they got a whole lot of push in like in the run game from Austin Stogner or anything like that or or from Blake Smith when he was out there, it just it didn't it it was that was almost like this is what we're gonna do this is my style and we're gonna force feed it when no nah, man I mean go go out there in ten personnel and, and toss it around to your awesome receivers let you know spread it out let your let your fifth year senior quarterback who is who is really mobile who can run let him get out there I I just. I'm I'm really hoping that we 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 see just a, a you know stuff that makes a lot more sense this coming year from Seth Luttrell. So I think in hindsight, I think we were both kind of right about that. Like you know, we'd know by the end of the year about Jeff Lebby. Next up, threw it over to the other coordinator, Ted Roof, 
And the question was, does Ted Roof last a full season? And we both didn't really answer this. You just kind of talked about Ted Roof. You, you said that if Ted Roof gets fired during the season, that means that Oklahoma's bad this year and that Brent Venables is likely going to be going soon after <laughs> because that means the, de- the defense is still bad. Uh, and you talked about, again, you reiterated that you think Ted Roof just being on the staff was a head scratcher and didn't make sense. I didn't really give a whole lot of thoughts on that on the podcast. Turns out, here we go. Yes, he did make it through a full year, but uh, now Venables made the decision to move on from him. And so Ted Roof is no longer there. And now the Zach Alley era begins. And we all kind of hope that that's a, an upgrade at the linebacker coach spot, just really in everything. And it's, again, just to throw it out there, it's not to say anything about Ted Roof as a person. Everyone loves Ted Roof. Just his resume is long as a football coach, and it's pretty mediocre. So there you go. Guy is uh, – I, mean, I mean, I can't remember exactly what it was when we were going through it when he was hired. He's, he's essentially had one one good defense as a defensive coordinator in his career. He's at Georgia Tech. And if you want to – I mean, and I know he won a national title at Auburn, but, man, that I, I remember that season pretty vividly. That Auburn team uh, bled yards pretty consistently. <laughs> so of course we went from levy to roof and then of course we had to go to the head coach and so we asked in august of last year will we know by the end of the 2023 season if brent venables is the right man for the job at oklahoma and so i said yes we'll know and i said that if ou wins 10 games then that's a great sign and things are looking up well OU won 10 games you said, Grant, you said that the, a better question would be, what do we need to see to tell you that Venables is the guy? You said that if OU goes 7-5 and five or 6-6, six and six, I'm pretty comfortable that he's not the guy. Then you said if they're like 9-3, and three, it's more of like, a, okay, maybe he's the guy, but I'm not 100% sure. And then you said if they win 11 or 12 games, then yes, he's the guy. So... I think I think I was wrong because I still don't know if he's actually the guy long term. We're going to learn a lot in the SEC and you know maybe a lot of coaches are going to have I, I, if Venable doesn't work, then that might mean that a lot of coaches aren't going to work either. And but I it's the jury is still out to me if he's like a guy that you expect to be at Oklahoma for another 10 years. But certainly the arrow's pointing up after a rebound 2023 season, winning 10 games. What do you think? I mean, yeah, he was, he was, he was obviously better in 2023. I think their two regular season losses still give you pause because they lost those games because of the coaching staff. Yeah. And so I, you know, we'll see. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens in first year of the SEC. But obviously he's, it's, it was a much better run through the second time and uh, I, the defense, I thought, made some some really good strides. I thought some guys, some individual players, got a lot better as well, and that's something that you can point towards. So, man, that's that's going to be a pretty difficult question to answer when we're doing the the season preview pod this summer about you know what is it the first year in the SEC? What do we? Because I don't even know if we're going to be able to say it like based off of record. They're just gonna it's going to have to be. I know. With I mean yeah, especially with the best you know the. The, the most difficult schedule in program history. 
I was listening. I was listening back to our show a couple of weeks ago when we were going over the win totals. I'm I'm still just aghast that you go by the SP Plus rankings and by extension the Vegas rankings. Half of their schedule are against top 15 teams in the country. That's absurd. That is stupid. That is I I'm. <laughs> Like when I when I think about it in that way, I'm I'm upset that they signed up for this stuff, and I'm even more upset that OU kind of got the ball going to essentially crater college football of what we know right now. It was them in Texas who got the who got the ball going on this. And um, man, I hope it's not one of those things that you can look back and and the narrative is set and it's like oh you did this themselves. Hope not. That's a man. That's that's a downside, right? Because it's gonna be an automatic W financially but we don't care about that fans don't care about that part of it you're part of the oklahoma administration your athletic directors all like yeah like you're 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 making money for the school hand over fist but the fans aren't making any of that money so we congrats you're gonna make a lot of money from this so that's a win but on the field will it be a win that's tbd but yeah this first season to your point is I guess the grade, if we're talking right now in late February, it's going to have to be mainly on the defense because the defense made a big jump in 2023. That's Venables' calling card. That's what side of the ball need, need you know, needed to get better. That's a big reason why he got hired. And the defense has so many returning starters, tons of experience. Uh, the offense is a brand-new starting quarterback. And so, like, if the defense performs – and even if Oklahoma doesn't have that great of a season, maybe that'll be kind of what you, you, you hang your hat on with Venables. It's like, okay, his side of the ball is still getting there. And then if they can develop some more younger guys and you see some, some, uh, some glimpses of hope, other players. But, yeah, it's, I agree. It's the, the record may not be the overall thing that you can judge Venables on this upcoming year, which is what a crazy time we're going to be living in in 2024, wherever we're going to be going into this upcoming season. For the first time, Grant, in a while – I'm sorry, but national championship playoff? Uh, yeah, probably not. Kind of like kind of a joke to even expect that. <laughs> like, although the, the the expanded playoff does makes a little more hope there. But with they that schedule, nine and, they go nine and three against that schedule. They're absolutely going to be there on selection Sunday with a chance to get into the playoff. But man, nine and three against that schedule. I mean, absent knowing what Jackson Arnold's going to look like. Um, heck. Best case scenario, man. Fast forward to late November, and Oklahoma was winning a lot of games, and it's Jack Snarl looks great. We're like, oh man, like this is what we hoped he'd look like, and he does. And the team is winning, and even though the schedule is difficult, that's best case scenario. I, I, I'm not going to hold my breath though on that, man, because that's difficult. And we'll see. You got year three of Venables. His first two recruiting classes are going to be, and you know, there there are multiple seasons of of there, and not a lot of guys have left from those classes as well. A lot of guys back on defense. They they need to take a step this year. You know, I the defense really needs to take a big step, and it needs to be good. It needs to be very good to the point where they can lean on it, and then that's where you can rely on on your X factor. If Jackson, if like let's say Jackson Arnold is great and Deion Burks is great, there you go. A couple more to go here before we get out of here. And this was the part of the show that I decided to to just throw some shade at players because I'm a jerk. Uh, but also, it's, it's fun podcasting. <laughs> and I asked, 
Who are we more certain is going to be an absolute non-factor in the 2023 season between these three veteran players? Marcus Major, Justin Harrington, and Key Lawrence. And so I'll just say, I think, Grant, you got this more correct than I did. I think I, I got this wrong. Your list was that uh, the, the most non-factor, as in this guy is not going to do a whole lot at all, you put Key Lawrence there. Your middle guy was Marcus Major. And the guy that you said would actually be the most likely to, to factor into the season was, Mar uh, was Justin Harrington. And so Harrington's obviously an incomplete because he was banged up and was injured after what two games, I think. Yeah. So and he finished. He finished. He got hurt in the SMU game. He finished it. Didn't play again. Didn't play again. Year. Yeah. And and he was playing a lot of snaps. So it it did look like at that time before he got hurt that you were correct. And also Marcus Major was starting at running back, and so he was your second guy. And then Key Lawrence. I think. I mean, Key did play a lot too. So. I think your ranking was probably more correct than mine because I said that the number one most non-factor would be Marcus Major. And by by God, the, the Marker Murray and Jeff Levy, and the, he was going to play as much as possible until he was phantomly injured and never played again after the UCF game, I believe. So I was wrong about that. Uh, my middle guy was Justin Harrington. Uh, I, I just, I could not believe that he was expected to be the starter, but I will say I did acknowledge in that preview podcast that Deshaun white, his glow up at cheetah was maybe the best sign that it's possible that Harrington could have a jump at that position. And so, you know, who knows if Harrington would have stayed healthy. And then my most likely to kind of be a factor was key Lawrence and, Again, I think I mean Key played a lot of snaps, uh, but I mean the main so one is that, that as it actually turned out, I mean Key was the biggest factor of all of these. He played in like every single game. It would have been, I mean Harrington would have if he would not have gotten hurt. Harrington likely would have been the number one factor guy here. Um, so yeah, it's it's it, it's a weird thing, but I'm curious to see who uh, in this prompt uh, for this upcoming season we'll put in there. If we do that again, yeah. Well, Marcus Major's gone, so we don't have to worry. It's just uh, maybe uh, Gavin Freeman will get thrown into that one because uh, they're, they're going to keep trying to push him like they did. And Gavin Freeman, Javante Barnes. Um, Javante Barnes. Honestly, I, 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 think Bar I think Barnes is probably is definitely a candidate to transfer after the spring, I would guess. Uh, he's just interesting. That, that's that he's one. Not, I've, he's, yeah. I've gone back. He's not, he's not good. He's, he is a he's just he's not a good player and hey, i guess you know fingers crossed that it is all just health and but man he's your i gone back and, and rewatched some stuff in the last like few weeks and I, I i think you pegged him you got him right right from the beginning i mean he's not a bad player but he's he was anything like particularly special and it was even more annoying whenever gavin sachuk showed up in the cheese it bowl and was by far their best running back and the only thing that I can say now after all this time, and we kind of learned it finally, at least I saw it with my own eyes in the most recent bowl game, and you hit, it on a, uh, hit on this at the very beginning of the show or early, is that Sawchuck maybe made a glass and just might always be hurt. I mean, and I guess I just personally had to see it happen in that bowl game. Like he 
pulls his hamstring. Like we actually, whereas all before it was always stuff in practice and you know, they are with injuries. They're always super silent. They don't talk about it. It's not like the NFL, wherever there's always updates on injuries. And so I'm always just kind of skeptical with that stuff. It's like, ah, really you're banged up. Come on. Like, okay, no, now I'm, I'm more of a believer that, yeah, maybe when I hear about Gavin Sawchuk being banged up or, or hurt, I'll likely believe it now compared to kind of how I, you know, I didn't really believe it as much before because, uh, but yeah, I mean, with, with Barnes though. Yeah. Like he played through an injury in 2022, apparently supposedly was healthy coming into last season. And then I don't know, like I haven't heard, was he hurt all year in 2023? I haven't heard anything about that. Just couldn't get on the field. I, I don't know. It's bizarre. All right. Lastly, didn't ask a question. We just had a prompt. He said, finish this sentence. If blank has an all American type season, Oklahoma goes at least 10 and two in the regular season. And I feel like I got this one right, but I mean, there really was no right or wrong answer, but I said, Danny Stutzman and he's the only guy I think he technically did have an all American season uh, because I said elite linebacker play will go a long way in making everybody else good. And Stutzman was very good. He was like, I think second or third team, all American and a couple outlets and uh Ogley went 10 and two you said rondell bothroyd which if he would have been an all-american yeah yes I'm, I'm sure that would have led to oklahoma you know being 10 and 2 or better it's just i've went over it earlier in the offseason brent venables has not had very good defensive end play in the last handful of years between clemson and oklahoma just don't do a whole lot I, but like I don't. But Bothroyd was good this past year. He just didn't have really any stats. Rondell Bothroyd was a massive upgrade over Reggie Grimes, like a massive upgrade. I don't know if he was a massive upgrade. I I don't know how much. He yeah, did. he was. They, their their run defense was so much better this past year, and a lot of that was Bothroyd. I would say a lot of the run defense being good was probably Stutzman because when he got hurt and didn't play very much, the run defense started to struggle. Yeah, I, I can't I, I, I can't let you say that <laughs> that Grimes and Bothroyd were close. It's not Grimes I'm not Grimes, saying a really good guy. Just, I love listening to him talk. One one of the worst players that OU has run out there consistently I've seen since I've been following the team. I'm just not I'm just not sure. I'm not really sure what Bothroyd did. Like, he didn't get a sack this year. Like, he just kind of stayed home and stuff. I mean, him and Trace Ford there, I mean, I don't know. Like, it just wasn't a very big bar to get to get above Reggie Grimes. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say they're, on a, from a production standpoint and rushing the passer, their defensive ends were not good. But, you know, you do, you, you do more than rush the passer at a defensive end. Just trying to, just, just trying to be fair about it. And uh, I asked a bunch of people on the West Everest Facebook page at that time to, to fill in that prompt as well. And so just to shout out some of our listeners, I'll go through some of their predictions. So our friend Harry, Harry was with you. He said Rondell Bothroyd. Philip says the entire offensive line, or said the entire, it's like, yeah, if the entire offensive line would have been all Americans, that would have been great last season. Nathan said Stutzman or Billy Bowman. You know, Bowman was also very good in 2023. Shane said that if Javante Barnes and Gavin Sawchuk play like All-Americans, yeah, if both of those guys would have played like All-Americans, that would have been great for Oklahoma's offense. 
probably would have won every game because the running game and throw Tawi Walker in there if he'd gotten carries that'd have been great Warren you said any defensive lineman which fair Shelly said Dylan Gabriel and that just to be fair like Dylan Gabriel was the obvious one but you made the point in the podcast to say let's let's do let's not use Dylan Gabriel because quarterback's the most important player so it was basically any player beside Dylan Gabriel uh, Hayden said Jalil Farouk and Drake Stoops and then the best one Caleb said if Austin Stogner has an all-american type season then OU is going to win a lot of games which is like that would have been something if Austin Stogner would have had an all-american season so in this particular part of the podcast I think Grant I, I gave it uh, I gave us a point for each correct prediction and I gave you five points and I got four points so you were more correct during that part of the show when it came to those unanswerable questions. Hang the banner. Do it. Hang it. And so next episode, we got some more stuff to go over. It includes some national narratives that were going around about Oklahoma. And we were going to try to poke holes in some of those national narratives. So I don't remember how that went. So I'm curious to revisit that. And then also we'll talk about some of our Big 12 thoughts and maybe some national predictions as well. So we'll talk about that on the next episode. Let's see. We did NIL talk already. I put a couple prompts down here. So, yeah, that's about it. I also have possibly another segment next week that is in the works that we may debut. So we'll see about that. I'm kind of working on that. Other than that. It's a hell of a tease, Lee. Hell of a tease. Thank you. Other than that, well, the end of the show, we usually say for anything else, any grab bag topics, anything else, uh, Stand out to you this week? Uh, you know, I mean, Bedlam basketball game was, I would say it was fun. The ending was fun. Not a fun game to watch. Um, good, I, I mean, don't know. Good I, thought it was a good good, I thought it was a good college, college basketball game. I, I just, I, I was frustrated. Um, they just watched the entire game. Like, I, it was weird. It's like, finally they get, they have a game where they're able to, they're able to score seems like they were they were getting to the getting to the paint pretty easily and finishing pretty well around the back basket the entire game but man they could not get a stop in that game to save their lives and that is just that's really it was just frustrating to watch i i i thought porter i i thought they were supposed to be a good defensive team and ever since i've watched them the last month in, in big 12 play they're they're horrendous defensively i i don't know how their defensive numbers remain like pretty solid from an efficiency standpoint uh because it doesn't seem like they they can get away with anyone getting into the into the paint without fouling at least. I mean, it's they're interesting team. They're an interesting team, man. And I think I think in all likelihood they probably punch their ticket to at least the first four by winning on uh, on Saturday night. And but man, that's 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 they're a weird team. Really weird team. Cool shot by McCollum though. Pretty sweet. Yeah, I'm happy that went in. It, I have no idea what the heck that was coming out of the timeout. I, I thought Porter Motor is supposed Porter Moser is supposed to be this smart, offensive, efficient coach, which he was. At I mean, the stats bear that out when he was at Loyola Chicago, and then that was the play. Like they, I'm using air quotes, drew up uh, isolation, up only needing a bucket, an isolation, and then a a fadeaway three that he settled on like oh you should not have won that basketball that should not have been an effective but jv mccollum to his credit made that shot and 
I tweeted this out. I would be great if making that shot, uh, I guess, is a catalyst for JV McCollum to you know to become an elite scorer the rest of the season for as long as OU's playing basketball because he is their best scorer. I think like their best. He hasn't played like that in the last month. Sorez has been, and he had a good game. By the way, I, I thought he was going to be out for the entire game after he tweaked his ankle and was hobbling around, and then he came back in and was fine, which was great. Uh, but I think he was McCollum, great. He was he yeah. was great on Saturday night. He was efficient. He scored. I think he scored nineteen on a really high shooting percentage. Didn't turn the ball over. I mean, he is. I. There was that narrative when he was out, as everyone says, like, yeah, this guy's been their best player in Big Twelve play. And I was watching last night. He's their best player. Sorez is their best player. He is, and that's things like I think McCollum though, when he's on, is their best score, like pure score. I think he's he can shoot, he can finish for being a, a small guy at the rim. He just hadn't played like it, and so maybe he his confidence will go up and he can start making shots because like they need him and they need to have at least two scores, man. Because they got to have, and then obviously you throw an away sometimes. He's he played a lot better last night. And he, he has played maybe his month. best game in the of, of the Big Twelve season so far but but also i mean i it, it bears repeating oklahoma state is not a good team that's that's not a good basketball team that's a bad offensive basketball team and OU let them score way too easily but also I it's a college s- basketball game on the road i will say though yes oklahoma state bad basketball team the previous two games before that they were playing their best basketball of the season and they've been scoring a lot of points so some some clicked after they lost to ou a couple weeks ago they put up 93 against BYU, beat BYU, and put up 80 against at Cincinnati. And beats, so they've been scoring a lot of points the last now three games in a row. So whatever it is with that team, I mean, they've got a bunch of young players and they've been playing a lot more confident. i kind of curious, if Oklahoma State continues to score a bunch of points, they got UCF next, then maybe it's like, okay, maybe they just played o- OSU now at a time when they're playing their best basketball. But yeah, I mean, it's still not a very good team. But I mean, obviously, OU needed that win because the rest of their schedule is brutal. I, I, I don't know if they're going to win another game. Like I think Cincinnati kind of stinks, but they could lose Cincinnati. Have to? They, I mean, they have to win that game. They have to win that game at home. I know uh, that'll. I mean, one one more win will do it. They will. They will punch their ticket with one more win. So, um, we'll see. And like, I, I wouldn't say like I, I think it's likely that they're probably going to be ground into dust against Iowa State and 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 Ames, but like I. I just whenever I watch Iowa State, I just don't think they're that great. I they're at, like Iowa State is absolutely a team that could just that could just throw up just a terrible game and they only score like forty five points just from not being a very good offensive team. I just so how is Iowa State a top ten basketball team? That blows my mind. I when they played in early January, man. I just. That Iowa State team, I just remember thinking like, OU's not playing that well in this game at all, and they still beat Iowa State. Fast forward now to late February, and they're in the top 10. <laughs> like, really? But yeah. also, we haven't had the, uh, like, Moser, his first two seasons, had like a random game, like home game, where they just, where they absolutely just smoke like a really good team. And could that be Houston this year? I mean, probably yeah. not, but nobody saw them beating Alabama by 30 last season. So yeah. I can't remember who it was the year before that, but the, I think it may have been like Arkansas. Like Arkansas went to the Elite Eight and they smoked Arkansas two years ago. Is this going to be Kelvin Sampson's re- first return to the LNC since he left? Sure is. Wow. That's going to be so weird for him. 
Oh, man. That's going to be so weird for him. Houston's good. Houston's the same thing every year. Houston is, they're exactly what early 2000s OU was. <laughs> they're such a good team that has like one or two really good players. And then inevitably when they make it to the Elite Eight or something, they're going to have trouble scoring and they're going to lose to a better team. Like that's <laughs> that, It's so wild how his teams are all kind of the same. Man. I watched uh, that yeah. their game against uh, the Houston Baylor game on Saturday afternoon was a really good game. I had uh, had some parlays going in that one, and that was actually, yeah, I don't know. I, I them beating Houston is going to be a tall tall order. I I think they have I I think they have more than just one or two good players. They have like all of their guards are really good, and they can all score. Yeah, I watched that game too. It was pretty good. That's all I have on that. <laughs> dynamite, dynamite dropping, I know. All right, well, I guess we'll pause until next time. Somehow, uh, we'll be in March by the time we talk next. How about that? We're, we're two, two months down in this offseason. Almost two months down. Just got to get to the summer. Just got to get to the summer. It'll be here before we know it. All right, everyone. Well, as always, you can leave us feedback on the West of Evers Facebook page if you'd like. We appreciate that. And you can find me on Twitter X at Lee Benson Tweets. Until next time, for Grant, I am Lee. This is West of Everest. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to the show. And if you want to help us spread the word, please leave us a five-star review. And also... Tell all of your friends who are OU fans about West of Everest. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud.